Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Before we fully jump into the psalm, I do want to take a, uh, a moment to actually introduce myself. I've only been here about six months. So there are many of you that I have not yet met. As Bill mentioned, I am director of the college ministries here. And I've actually uh, been in Lawrence before. I was a student here. I uh, graduated in 96. And my wife as well was a student here. Actually, I graduated in 94. She graduated in 96. So uh, it is good to be back in Lawrence. We, uh, we attended Grace while we were students here. Bill actually married us, going on nine years now. So after graduating from, uh, from KU, went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, spent a couple of years in Athens, Georgia, and then left staff in 99. For the last five years, we have been, uh, we were at Covenant Theological Seminary. I just graduated in May, Master's of Divinity and a Master's in Counseling. So that took a while, but it is good to be through. And what I've told people, what I like to say is that uh, for a while, we felt like we were wandering in the wilderness, especially we were in Mizzou country in St. Louis. But now we have made it back to the promised land, and it is good to be back. I love being back in Lawrence. I love being at Grace, and I love working with college students. And I find myself referring to Psalm 73 often in the context of college ministry because I'm convinced college students live in the midst of this psalm. I myself find often that I live in the midst of this psalm, and my guess is that all of us can relate to one degree or another with Psalm 73. Though written around 3,000 years ago by Asaph, who was appointed by King David to lead worship in the sanctuary, it expresses struggles and doubts that are very contemporary. It expresses struggles and doubts that every believer faces when living life, when in the midst of a trial, in the midst of crisis, especially when we look around and see other people that seem to be doing so well when we seem to be really struggling. A pastor once said, we are all either entering into a crisis, in the midst of a crisis, or coming out of a crisis. I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. And what we find here is Asaph invites us into his own journey as he goes through a crisis of faith. In verse 1, Asaph says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Israel would be the term that is used, especially in the Old Testament, for the people of God. We also know that in Galatians 6.16, Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. So the Israel here is also us. We are the Israel of God. This word applies not just to them back there and then, but it applies to us today. And if you're sitting here this morning, my guess is you would agree with the statement that God is good. Yet... The psalm doesn't end here. The proposition that God is good is actually tested. And when questions arise as to, in our own lives, when we experience struggles or doubts or frustrations and we wonder, is God good? What do you do? 
This is an interesting and a beautiful case study of what to do when wrestling with doubts and questions about the goodness of God. God is good. And then in verse 2, Asaph says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Reminds me years ago when I was in Colorado. I was hiking. And as you'll see from the story, I was not and still am not an experienced hiker. But I was doing fine that day with, with, with some friends. They were away from me. For whatever reason, I got away from the pack and was hiking up vertically um, up the trail and doing fine. Then I decided I kind of wanted to go to a different area, so I decided to move horizontally. Well, I kind of got off the path, and there were some small rocks, some gravel. I thought, okay, I'll just move across that. No big deal. It was fairly, sleep, but I, fairly steep, but I thought, it'll be all right. So I start going, and I recognized two steps into it that I'm in serious trouble. Because what I realize now is that stuff's called scree just doesn't sound very firm, and it wasn't. The minute I moved out on that, my feet started slipping, I started stumbling, and it was a long fall down. I realized that I was about to become a human avalanche, and I would have been tumbling for a while, and it would not have been pretty. Fortunately, right above me was a tree branch that I was able to reach up and grab onto, and it was through grabbing on that tree branch I was able to make my way through to solid ground. My feet almost stumbled. It's kind of a picture we have here with Asaph. He's stumbling. He's slipping. Why? Verse 3 tells us, It is due to envy, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy. It is a destructive sin. And yet, so often in life, it's one that does not necessarily get a lot of publicity. I think of my own life. I don't often find myself confessing the sin of envy, but it is destructive. So a couple questions to wrestle with this morning. What is envy, and why is it destructive? First, what is envy? We could say envy is jealousy. Envy is coveting. We know from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. The last commandment is do not covet anything that is your neighbor's. It is desire for what we do not have. We could say it's discontented desire for another's possessions or even another advantage, another's advantage. So it's not just things, but also status. So why is Asaph envious? Well, we see in verses 4 through 12, if I can summarize some of these. Verse 4, he looks around and he sees that the wicked are alive and well. And when I refer to wicked, that's not necessarily a term that we use often. We don't necessarily call people wicked. Um in everyday language, and yet the intention here is those that are hostile to God, those that are ungodly, those that do not seek God. So he looks around and he sees the, the wicked unbelievers are doing very well, and yet he is struggling, and he wonders, in a moral universe directed by a sovereign God, why is this? He looks, he sees that they have, in verse 4, no struggles until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Spurgeon spoke of this. Spurgeon, great preacher, in one of his sermons spoke and said, they have a quiet death gliding into eternity without a struggle. And the words of fat and sleek, that's actually a compliment. To be fat would be to have an abundance. They are healthy. They are strong. Some translations refer to this. And yet if we look at our lives as Christians, there are struggles that we all face. Verse 5, they have no burdens. And yet, we do have burdens. 
And in fact, in Galatians 6, chapter 2, or Galatians um, chapter 6, verse 2, we are to bear one another burden, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So not only do we have our own burdens, but we're called to enter into the burdens of others. Verses 6 through 11, to summarize those, they're prideful, they're violent, they mock God. And if that's not bad enough, they're even popular. And what we know of 2 Timothy 3.12 is that for believers, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does this seem fair? Calvin, who, not of Calvin and Hobbes, but the theologian Calvin, says in his, he speaks insightfully on this passage. He says this, The ungodly for the most part triumph, and although they deliberately stir up God to anger and provoke his vengeance, yet from his sparing them, it seems as if they had done nothing amiss in deriding him, and they'll never be called to account for it. On the other hand, the righteous, pinched with poverty, oppressed with many troubles, harassed by multiplied wrongs, and covered with shame and reproach, groan and sigh. When such is the state of matters, where shall we find the person who is not sometimes tempted by the unholy suggestion that the affairs of the world roll on at random, and as we say, are governed by chance? I think Calvin brings up a good point. When unbelievers prosper and flourish and triumph, and believers struggle and suffer, can it cause us to wonder, do the affairs of the world roll on randomly? Is God, is he sovereign? Is he in control? For me personally, as I watch the news at times and I see the horrible tragedies that take place, or even within my own family see suffering, or within this congregation or friends see things, it can at times cause us, even within our hearts, to cry out, God, where are you? Do you see what's happening? Are you in control? And yet the reality is, Scripture affirms, yes, God absolutely is in control. He doesn't miss anything. He sees it all. So why then is God gracious to unbelievers? Morally, um, it seems unfair that those that reject God, that God would actually turn around and bless at times. Why does this take place? Another way to ask it is, why, according to Matthew 5, 45, does God make his son rise on the evil and the good? God sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why is this? Well, I will not begin to speak exhaustively on this because I can't. But I will say from Romans 2, we get a glimpse into some of the answer at least. If you could turn to Romans chapter 2, keep your finger in Psalm 73. We'll spend most of our time there. Romans chapter 2, I'll begin in verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here we see in this passage that God's goodness is intended to give the unbeliever an opportunity to see his goodness and to repent. And what is repentance? Repentance would be when a sinner who understands 
their sin, desires to turn from it with hatred of their sin, and seeing the mercy of God cling to Christ, that, would, that is a short definition of what repentance would be. But the unbeliever is to beware of despising God's goodness, of taking it for granted, of presuming upon the mercies of God. And if they continue in a hard heart, what, what has actually happened is they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. And we are not to hope that the unbeliever faces judgment and goes to hell by no means. But we are to hope that, that the goodness of God would humble the unbeliever. And, see, and the unbeliever would see the goodness and repent and turn to Christ. Psalm seven, or Proverbs twenty three seventeen says this. It says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. So why are we not to envy sinners? This is the second question to wrestle with. Why is envy destructive? The reason envy is destructive, at least part of the reason, is envy leads to doubt. When we face struggles, when we go through things that are tough, when we face crises, we're tempted to doubt. Is God really good here? Is he personal? Is he one that I can trust? Is he safe? We can doubt if God is good. We can doubt if God truly cares about us. Envy of others can tempt us to doubt the goodness of God. This became a reality about eight months ago when we were, my wife and I, we were finishing up in St. Louis. I was graduating, and we were excited about the trip here to Lawrence to come look for a house. It was that time. And so we... Uh, we had great expectations. We prayed a lot about this. We really desired for the house hunting to be a, a, fun, a fun time. And for many of you that have been part of house hunting, it's not always the most enjoyable. We, we prayed a lot for this. We were desiring that God would give us a great house for us, uh, a great house for ministry, especially with college students. So we're excited. We came here. We started looking. It was on a Friday. And actually, one of the first, it might have been the first house that we went into, I remember really liking it. And then as the day went on, it seemed that no other house compared to that house. And so I really, my heart became fixed on that house. I was excited about it. Even that night, uh, or when we were finishing with the day, I was pretty much ready to lay a contract down. But we thought, no, let's not do that yet. Let's take some extra time to really pray about this, make sure this is the Lord's will, look at our finances, make sure that's in order, and, uh, and just uh, trust that the Lord was... The Lord is going to be gracious to us. What ends up, we, went, we, uh, we slept on it. So Saturday morning, we get up, and the first thing we find out is that the house was gone. It ends up that late into the night, a couple from California flew on in, and they stole our house right from under our feet. And that did two things in my heart. One, it made me hate everyone from California. <laughs> and the second thing it did... It really, my heart was embittered towards God. We continued looking for a house that day, but we found none. And we were really, um, really discouraged. And on the way home back to St. Louis, I couldn't understand it. I was very envious of the couple from California, that wicked couple. Because my assumption was that it was no problem for them. They come right in, no burdens, no struggles, no thoughts. They have a, they have an abundance of wealth. They lay the contract down and it's done. And here I was wrestling and agonizing. 
And as I was talking to Tiffany, I was saying, I am really struggling with this, and I can't figure out why. It's just a house. It's just a house. But then it became clear. The issue was I felt that God was really cruel. I'd spent so much time, Tiffany and I had spent so much time praying and thinking through this, and it felt like God ripped the carpet right out from under our feet. I doubted that God actually cared at that moment. How about your life? What circumstances have you gone through, or are you maybe even going through now, that cause you to doubt God's goodness in your life? Envy is dangerous because we can doubt God's goodness, and we can resent others for the blessings that they have. Oftentimes we can look and think that the grass is greener over on the other side. The grass is greener with this house or that marriage or whatever it might be. The reality is the grass over here is astroturf. It's not even real, but it feels real. It looks real from a distance. And at times, doubt and envy can cause us to raise our fist towards heaven and declare to God, I deserve more. And maybe you don't outwardly raise your fist, but I think within our hearts at times, our fist is raised and we say to God, I deserve more. Why do I have to go through this? And there are many things to be envious of. What do you desire? What are you jealous of? What makes you jealous? What do you covet? Students at Duke's Business School were asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now listen to this quote. With few exceptions, they wanted three things, money, power, and things, very expensive things, including vacation homes, expensive foreign automobiles, yachts, and even airplanes. Primarily concerned with the careers and the growth of their financial portfolios, their personal plans contain little room for family, intellectual development, spiritual growth, or social responsibility. Now, if we hear this, we may condemn them as materialistic and shallow. Maybe you don't fantasize about owning a yacht or an airplane. But I think within here, there's a degree that we share with these students from Duke's School of Business. We share a discontented heart at times that we long for things that we don't have. What do you long for? Is it more financial security? Nicer home? Nicer car? Fancier Christmas gifts? More prestige or respect, maybe like the stars that appear in People Magazine, Sports Illustrated. Maybe it's a happier marriage or better behaved children. Maybe it's better health, which is a real struggle. Or even appearance, the desire to be more handsome, more beautiful. Plenty of things to get envious about. And do you envy others? feeling like they have something that you don't have. What, and you wonder, I wonder, why is God good to them when it feels like he's not good to me? Envy focuses our attention on the blessings that we do not have rather than us focusing our attention on the blessings that we already have in Christ. So when envy causes us to ask the question if God is good, it can lead us to despair. It can lead us to asking the question, is it worth it? And we see this in verse 13 with Asaph. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph wrestled with the question, is it worth it? And if you strive to walk with the Lord, you will suffer. In business, if you seek to live with integrity, with godly character, there's a good chance you will not advance like your competitors. 
there's a good chance you will not be able to make the amount of money or success that others around you who play by the rules of the world can make socially. If you desire to follow Christ, there's a cost to that. And it's difficult when those around you who do not seem to be seeking the Lord are flourishing and they seem to be having a great life. We can think that we're missing out. This reminds me of a story. It's a college student named Matt. A student I knew when I was in St. Louis. Matt was, in many respects, he was the poster child for his youth group uh, while he was in high school. His peers respected him. His... uh, even the leadership had a lot of respect for him. He was desiring to grow in godliness in the Lord. And then he got to college. And I met, I met Matt when he was in college. And he looked around, and he started to realize all that he was missing. He was looking around at the party scene. He's looking around at all the girls that are in college. And he's thinking to himself, I'm missing out. Because he was running with a crowd of friends, and they were a cool crowd. They were not a crowd that was following the Lord, but they seemed to be living this life that was so enticing to him, and his feet began to slip more and more. I remember one point leading a Bible study that he was in, and I could just tell the hardness of his face, his eyes, the hardness of his heart was showing. And so even afterwards, I asked, Matt, let's go for a walk together. So we took a walk, and it was in that walk that he said, you know, he said, I just want to have fun. Why can't I just have fun in life? The hard thing is he was struggling in life at that point. He had some difficult family stuff going on. The Lord was working on his character, working in his life. But it was hard. It was hard stuff. So Matt said, I just want to have fun. Why can't I just wait, enjoy my four years, and then I'll get serious about Christianity later? And his feet continued to slip. Matt was convinced that in vain he was keeping himself pure. And so he walked away. The world has been lied to, but we think it's the truth, or they think it's the truth. Christians have been given the truth, but we're convinced it's a lie. It's a quote that was told by another friend. I think it sums up, in some ways, the story of Matt and also our lives as well. At least I know from myself. The world has been lied to, and they think it's the truth, but we've been given the truth, and we think it's a lie. What does the world have to offer us? What the world has to offer us is mud pies. Does that make any sense at all? Maybe not. Let me read this quote. I'm getting that from my favorite quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The world offers us a buffet of mud pies, and it screams, Come on, get your feel, eat. So what's the remedy to mud pies? The remedy is found in verses 16 through 22. If you could read along with me. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. 
the remedy to mud pies that the world has to offer is worship. In verse 17, we see that Asaph went into the sanctuary of God. And it's at this moment that this whole psalm changes direction. It's at this moment when Asaph is in the sanctuary, when he worships, that his life is transformed. He has an aha moment. Heaven will be full of those moments of, oh, aha, now I see. He has one of those moments. We don't know how. We don't know the context of if it was corporate worship or if he was quietly reflecting or meditating on the Lord. We're not sure. But we know as he worshiped God at that moment. And he saw God for who he is. And he also understood the destiny of those who do not follow God. Asaph, through worship, sees things differently. In verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Do you remember back in verse 2? Who was in slippery ground? Who was stumbling? It was Asaph. But now in verse 18, he sees not only are they on slippery ground, but they're actually falling to ruin. The picture that I get is, again, on a mountain in Colorado, only a skier on a black diamond blindfolded. Starting down the mountain, it is fun, it's exciting for a while, it's a good ride, but ultimately there's an end and you perish. Verse 19 and 20 draws this reality out as it says, they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. This is an expression of death. The reality is there are many around us. These are co-workers, friends, family, people that we rub shoulders with that seem to be having a great life, seem to be doing so well. But if they have rejected God, if they have despised God's rule over their life, verse 20 says God will also despise them. This should cause us not to envy them, but to have great compassion for those who are around us. This psalm is one of my favorite psalms for many reasons, but one of the reasons is because I love the honesty of this psalm. We see that Asaph approaches God with absolute honesty. He says in 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. When my soul was embittered, some of your translations might have when my heart was grieved. It's a very telling phrase because it's exactly what happens at times when we struggle, when we suffer, when we go through things. Our very hearts can be embittered towards God. And God desires that we bring those to him. And yet, we also see in verse 22 that God desires that we confess to him when we have approached the Lord with insensitivity, when we have accused him of wrong where he is not wrong. Asaph does repent, and his brutishness, his ignorance, is turned into praise in the rest of the psalm. In verses 23 through 28, I believe these are some of the most beautiful verses in all the scriptures. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. 
Asaph realizes, even though he has been brutish and sensitive towards the Lord, that God is always with him, that God holds him by his right hand. If you could ask Asaph before verse 18, the first half of Psalm, if God is good, I believe Asaph would have said, yes, but, and we see that in verse 2, yes, God is good, but, and yet in the second half of this psalm, Asaph's in a different place. If you ask him if God is good, he would say yes. I think without a but. And what's changed? It doesn't, the scripture gives us no indication that his circumstances have changed, but what has changed is his view of what goodness really is. Before, I think Asaph, as he looks around, would have thought goodness as prosperity, as prestige. But now we see goodness is not that. Divine goodness is really God's presence. And we're not talking Christmas presence. We're talking true relational presence. Both here on this earth and throughout eternity, that is God's goodness that he draws near to us. I'm challenged in verses especially 25 and 26. Whom I have in heaven but you, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I want to be able to say this. So be able to, it'd be great to say this, but I understand that I can't. And it's because I know myself well enough to know that my heart at times longs for things that the world has. My heart longs for the satisfaction of things other than what Christ has to offer. Asaph wrestled with God and has fallen in deeper love with him. Trials and sufferings that we face, um, they can feel like a curse. No doubt about it. But the reality is, it actually can be a blessing because it's in those times that we really come to the place in our life where we recognize our only hope, our real comfort, is the very presence of God that draws near to us. I actually cannot claim to have much suffering, especially at this point in my life. But I am raising three children with my wife, who are ages six and younger. So that brings about an amount of suffering. And there are times when my wife and I, when we are utterly discouraged, when we're confused, don't know where to turn, don't know what to do, that we, every once in a while, we'll have a family meeting, we'll all sit down and we'll say, guys, and especially speaking to the, the two, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, uh, three children, Peyton, who is six, Quentin, who is four, and Paige, who is 20 months. So we say, guys, actually talking to our boys, because Paige is just cute as anything at 20 months. We'll say, guys, what, what do we all really need right now? And they've learned the answer. They'll sigh and they'll say, we need Jesus. And I think that is the reality, is what we really need, we really need Jesus. We really need his presence. And that is what Asaph understands here, that what he truly needs is Jesus. I believe that this psalm, in this psalm, we see three perspective changes. The first one is that Asaph's perspective on the wicked has changed. In the first half of the psalm, we see that he's jealous of the wicked. And yet in verse 27, he says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Again, this should cause our hearts to be burdened, not to envy those who do not know the Lord, but to pray for them, to have compassion upon them. Second perspective change is in regards to God's goodness. Again, divine goodness is not based on prosperity or prestige, but rather God's presence. 
And we see this. We know that in verse 1, Asaph claimed that God is good. But then in verse 2, Asaph makes the statement, but as for me, and then he goes on to say, my feet almost stumbled. But here we have in verse 28, the same phrase at the end of the psalm, but as for me, but this time it's different, but as for me, it is good to be near God. Asaph understands that goodness is nearness to God. And we have the ability to be near to God in a way that Asaph could not have fully recognized. And that is through Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 23. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We see in this passage, by God's grace, we can draw near with a clean heart, with a pure heart, because God first drew near to us through Christ's death on the cross. When we doubt God's goodness, and at times we all do, we must look to the cross. When others around us doubt God's goodness, we must point them to the cross, because the cross is where God's wrath was poured out on sin And at the same time, his goodness and his mercy was poured out on us. The third perspective change is in regards to Asaph himself. In the first half of the psalm, he he felt like his, his purity to the Lord was in vain. His heart was embittered. And yet we see in verse 28, he says, I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Asaph sees with fresh eyes and a new heart that God is good to his people, and he desires to tell it. I asked in the beginning, when doubts of God's goodness arise, what do you do? I think this psalm leads us in some, some great directions. One is the psalm gives us freedom to bring our struggles and our doubts to the Lord. And the Lord will receive us graciously. The psalm also desire, the psalm also encourages us to, when we have spoken out against God or been insensitive to him, to also go to him and confess that. The psalm also encourages us to enter into worship. And why is that? Because it's in worship where through the singing, the reading, and the preaching of the word, through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, through prayers, through even connecting with one another, that were pointed to the cross, the true reality of goodness. Worship points us to to Christ, where we see the supreme act of goodness on our behalf as he died on the cross for us. In worship, we see God for who he truly is, but also we see the reality of the world around us. The remedy against envy is to recognize God's perfect goodness that he lavishes on his children. Now, with the house, where I left you is I was embittered towards God and hated Californians. So I want to go back to that quickly. 
We were discouraged. The next day, Tiffany sees on the internet a house that, that she was excited about. She comes out and she says, Chad, I, I think this might be the one. I was pretty cautious at that point. But we call our realtor, who we greatly trust, and we said, could you please go look at this house for us? Sure enough, he looks at it and he says, this looks like the kind of house that you have been looking for. So the next day, early that next morning, we jump in our car and we drive back to Lawrence. And we look at this house and everything seems so well suited for us, for ourselves personally, for ministry and everything, with one exception, part of the story I left out earlier, is that at times our family, we would, when we get together, we would pray and involve our children in this, praying for a house. And our Peyton, our six-year-old, or he will be six in a few months, would pray for a swing set in the backyard. Now, obviously, this puts a lot of pressure on mom and dad because his, he could have a crisis of faith if God doesn't pull through for him on this or if daddy doesn't pull through on this. And so the house was perfect, except we looked out in the backyard and there was no swing set, except in the corner was a two-story playhouse with a built-in AC unit for those hot summer muggy days. We were amazed. We were amazed, and I, it was in that moment of seeing that, and we got the house, we recognized, God is good. I had to wait. I had to wait for a day, which isn't bad. I mean, the reality is, sometimes we have to wait. What Psalm 73, part of the message is, God is good, but we have to wait. Sometimes it's a day, maybe a week, maybe months, may not be until eternity, but eventually we will see the goodness of God in all its fullness, all his fullness and in all his glory. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are gracious. Lord, help us not to look around and to envy what the world has to offer us, but I pray that you would help us, give us eyes to see and a heart to embrace the blessings that we truly have in Christ. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the testimony of one who has struggled with faith but came out worshiping you with more of a pure heart. I pray that for all of us, that we would worship you with more of a pure heart, even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.